Now, we're going to jump back into the pursuit. We only have two weeks left, this week and then next week. This week, we're talking about mercy. Next week, we're going to talk about the ripple effect, how your life leaves a wake, how things kind of ripple out. So uh, look forward to that next week in this Labor Day. Then we start First Life, and that's a seven-week series, then Wimberly Strong, and then next year is the year of hope. So y'all got ready. We're kind of already into 2018, the year of hope, bringing hope to the Wimberly Valley. But I want you to keep this in your mind. You've heard me say this, and I repeat things a lot because you need to hear them a lot. Every decision becomes a destiny. Every decision. Your decision to eat three cookies today is going to become a destiny on your waistline. Now, some of you say, you're judging me now. I didn't eat any cookies today, but today is not done. Anyway, that's, that's just every decision becomes a destiny. And you, you make decisions that shape who you are. And God wants you to make decisions that honor him. And God has already decided some things for you. And one of the things he's decided is mercy. He's decided on your behalf to show you mercy. Now, let me take you on just a slight bit of a theological adventure to help you understand this. God, in his wisdom, created the system of salvation. Before the fruit had crunched in the Garden of Eden, Jesus Christ had left for the cross of Calvary. The cross was not God's plan B. The cross was God's plan A. God never has a plan B. God always has a plan A. God's will will be done, period, on earth as it is in heaven. He is not surprised, caught off guard. He is not adjusting. He's not at the line of scrimmage calling an audible. He knows what's going on. And so he developed the way of salvation. Now, he chose a people called the Hebrew people, uh, the seed of Abraham, to bless the nations of the world. When God chose the Hebrew people, he wasn't being exclusive or creating an elite race, even though they thought that, because the propensity of sin is to make you think you're better than somebody else. Anytime you see racism, it's sinful. Do I need to repeat that? Racism is sinful. Elitism is sinful. Supremacy is sinful. Are y'all with me? Okay, so God created his people so he could bless the nations of the world. And to bless the nations of the world was out of that people was going to come a Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. That Jesus Christ was going to come out of these people group. So he picked this people group, and these people group, they went through a lot of stuff. One of the things they went through was being uh, slaves in Egypt. Now, you probably have heard that. They were slaves, and you know, you've seen the Ten Commandments, probably the corniest movie ever created on a biblical account. But some of you went, what? Yes, Charlton Heston was kind of cool until he met God that he was a creep. Okay, just saying that. Next time you watch it, and look for the guy holding up his arm at the Red Sea, and he has his Rolex on. Look for that, okay? <laughs> so, just, just, a, just a thought. I just ruined it for you. But, um, you know, let my people go, that, that kind of thing. They were in Egypt. Now, how long do you, were they in Egypt? Anybody know right off the top of the head? Over 400 years. They were slaves in Egypt. Now, what happened to them in Egypt is that they had been enculturated. They became Egyptians. Now, they were these exclusive people, these people after God's own heart, these people that were to be the blessing to the nations of the world. They get transported to Egypt, and they get enculturated to become an e Egyptians. Now, I've seen this firsthand. I've seen people of faith get enculturated. That we, Tara and I had the privilege a few years ago 
to go to the island of Bali, where we were working with the church there in Bali. And we spent, what, 10 days in Bali? Tara, suffering for Jesus. I actually got to go surfing in Bali. That was pretty awesome, all for Jesus, you know. <laughs> Jesus walked on water. I just need a board, but we, we, we did that. It was a, a great experience. We were working at church there. But we, we got there. There were was, was some missionaries who were there, Christian missionaries from another denomination who had become enculturated Hindus. They had been in Bali so long they forgot who they belonged to and now they were practicing full-bore Hinduism claiming to be Christians. They added, they added Hinduism onto their Christianity and they were completely ineffective because they didn't know what they believed or why they believed it. They were enculturated. Two folks from South Carolina had become Balinese Hindus. And we went to a temple with them. And our intent was to go to a temple with them to pray for the people in the temple, to ask the Lord Jesus to work in this place where literally Hinduism invokes their gods, their demons to come and live among them. Hinduism is terribly oppressive. The average Balinese spends 50% of their income on giving sacrifices to their false gods. And the only one profiting from that are the priests. And it's a broken system. And these people, we said, okay, yeah, we're going to go to this temple, and we had to put on this, this Hindu garb, this skirt-looking thing. And thank God I'm a man because I'd be an ugly woman. <laughs> put on this skirt, put on this head thing, and we, we had to go in the temple. And I said, okay, guys, as we walk, let's prayer walk this temple. Let's pray that the Lord Jesus would move. And they said, they said no, pastor, we're not going to do that. We're going to respect their holy place. We're not going to come in and, and, and be Christians here. So I called an audible. I pulled our team and said, look, I don't care what these crazy folks say. We're going to go ahead and pray for Jesus to come and work at this place. And we did. In fact, it was crazy. One of our guys was going out praying, and this dog came out of nowhere and wanted to bite him. And so we go, this is creepy. This is creepy. And we prayed, and we watched how ineffective these people because they've become enculturated. Now, the Hebrew people had become enculturated Egyptians. They walked like an Egyptian. You're welcome. They, they talk like Egyptians. They behave like Egyptians. Egyptians, now, you don't get this from history, but listen to me. Egyptians were amazingly, incredibly sexually perverted. Amazingly crazy sexually perverted. They were demonic in their, in their manifestation. They were a broken society where life does not matter. And these people have become Egyptian. Well, God sent them into, he set them free. Moses came. I love the fact Moses, the reluctant leader, became Moses, the dynamic leader, because the Spirit of God was working in Moses. So I want to tell you something, folks. It doesn't matter about your reluctance when your great God is moving. Just say it. So suck it up, buttercup. Go with Jesus. So Moses leads the people out, and they wander in the desert for 40 years. This was a seven-day journey they went for 40 years. Now, that made Jonathan feel like some of my sermons. It's a 40-year journey in the wilderness. But that's what happened. And while, he, while they were in the wilderness, God was getting the Egyptian out of them. He was, he was showing them he was God. So he did this. They ran out of water. He gave them water. They ran out of food. He gave them manna. They had food to eat. He sent quail into the camp every day. God fed them for 40 years. Every meal they had, God made it. 
manna and quail, every drop of water they drank, God provided for them. Forty years in the desert, their clothing did not wear out, nor did they get blisters on their feet. God sent them protection, the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke, to show them that he was their, not only their provider for their sustenance, but he was their protector as well. And he was getting the Egyptian out of them. They, they, under, they experienced the, the discipline of God. When they were in rebellion, God would discipline them, and it felt painful. One discipline effect that when people rejected Moses, his sister and his brother under with the discipline of God. His sister broke out in leprosy because she was making fun of the woman Moses married. And there's some racial undertones there because the woman Moses married was from Ethiopia, a Cushite, probably a black woman, and she was making a racial overtone and God gave her leprosy. Whew. Another time, several thousand of them died in a plague. The earth opened up and swallowed a bunch of them because God was disciplining them to show them that he was God. And then he did something really incredible. Are you guys with me? He, he told Moses, he said, these are my commandments. This is the codifying of the way I want you to live. And he gave him the Ten Commandments so they could understand this is what God wants. Do you know what really pleases God? Obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice. He wants you to obey him. So he gave him the law. And they were, they, they, this is how we're to live. Ten commandments this is how we're living. And then he said, I want you to build a tabernacle because I want you to build a tent of meeting to show the people that I live among you, which is a pre-shadowing of Jesus Christ. That he, they, he's God Emmanuel. He lives with us. And so they built a tabernacle. And they built their camp in a circle that the tabernacle was in the center of it. And everybody faced into the tabernacle. So when Moses and Joshua would go in the tabernacle, everybody would see it, and they would see God descend, and they knew that God was meeting there with them. Isn't that cool? And then he went a little step further. He said, because I'm a covenant God, I build a covenant with you, I'm going to build the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to give you a physical symbol of my covenant with you. Now, a covenant, it means that it's an agreement between God to you. And God says, I'm going to give you a covenant between you and me that I'm going to maintain, but what it's going to do is cause you to have better relationships with you. Do you know Baptists have always had covenants? The first Baptist covenant that was recorded was in 1646. We had a covenant between God to us. We're going to trust God, and this is how we're going to live together. Pretty cool. So we are a covenant people, a people under covenant. And he said, in this Ark of Covenant, I want you to... It's going to be symbolic of me dwelling among you. It's going to be symbolic of our covenant relationship. Put there a jar of manna, put the Ten Commandments, and put in Aaron's rod. Show my protection, my provision, which is the, uh, the manna. Show my, my codification of law, which is the Ten Commandments. And show my priesthood, which is Aaron's, Aaron's rod that blossomed, uh, it blossomed in a miraculous way. And so he put those, put those in the Ark of Covenant. Now, they designed the Ark of Covenant in such a way. God said, do this. I want you to put two cherubim or two angels with their wings stretched out over the Ark of Covenant so their wings are not quite touching, but you show them that they're covering. Do you know when, when Jewish people get married, they get married under a canopy that shows the covering of God? And so he said, put these, these angels so their wings are touching, and then right under that is what's called the mercy seat. 
And when the priest would come in, the high priest would come in and have an annual sacrifice to forgive people of their sins, they would drop blood on the mercy seat. The sacrificial blood would drop on the mercy seat to show that that God was the one through a blood covenant was going to forgive them of their sins. Now, this was all foreshadowing of Jesus Christ because if we jump ahead to the book of Romans, now, Paul wrote Romans. Paul, one of the most, well, probably the most brilliant theologian to ever live. Paul, um, Paul had the whole Old Testament memorized. Isn't that incredible? This is what Paul says in Romans about Jesus and about mercy. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in past times. Now, if you look at this a little different, if we took, literally took a look at this passage in the original language of Greek, you will find that Jesus is the mercy seat of God. Paul was saying Jesus is the mercy seat. Now, when the blood was put on the mercy seat, it was the blood of a, a goat, a ram, or a bull, a goat, actually. And when, when that, that blood hit the mercy seat, then sin was exonerated. With the blood of Christ, who Christ is the mercy seat, means our sins have been forgiven. Now, the fancy word for this is that Jesus Christ is our propitiation. In other words, propitiation is the one who makes you right. It's Jesus. It ain't you. You don't become right by what you say, what you do, but what you believe about Jesus. And Jesus makes you right. You don't. In fact, you can't even come to Jesus without his spirit drawing you to himself. Now, I say this because you're in this room today, or perhaps you're listening on this broadcast, Jesus is drawing you. You, unless you're just completely, absolutely bored out of your head and you showed up here for no other reason, Jesus is drawing you to himself. He is your propitiation. I think that's pretty cool. Are you, are you guys with me? Mercy sits in the center of the covenant of God and Jesus is our mercy. Jesus is that sacrifice for us, but it gets better. It gets better. You see, God chose to speak to Moses as one would speak to a friend face-to-face, which is pretty awesome. Now, the Holy Spirit will speak to us now. He speaks to us in the promptings of the wooing, and uh, one of the signs of spiritual maturity is the, the ability to understand or hear from the Holy Spirit of God. Now, when people say, well, the Lord said to me, the Lord said to me, the Lord said to me, you know, that can get a little creepy and can get a little outrageous, but let me say, God will prompt your heart. You need to listen to the voice of God. We'll talk about that more in another sermon, how to discern the voice of God. But God spoke to Moses, get this, the voice came from the mercy seat. When Moses went to meet with God, God spoke to him from the mercy seat. Mercy is the language of heaven. Why? Because we need mercy. We're broken and flawed and fallible. Heaven is fluent in mercy. But it gets a little better. You'll read in Scripture where it says tender mercy. 
God gives us his tender mercy. When you see that translated in English, what it literally means in Hebrew is this. It's mercy without limit. In other words, you cannot out God's mercy. God gives you mercy that you do not deserve. Wow. I, I, need, I need that. Don't, don't you? That's kind of a one grunt and two head shakes. Don't you? Yeah. And God speaks us to our lives, and he gives us to our lives. And what he wants to do, he wants to get the Texas out of you. He doesn't want you to be a Texan. He wants you to be a Christian. He wants you to look like Jesus, think like Jesus, act like Jesus, and he wants you to be full of his mercy. Because he's extended mercy to you, he wants you then to extend mercy to one another. And the decision of mercy shapes our destiny to be the people of God. So here in the pursuit, we're looking at the life of King David, who literally was ruled by mercy. David, a man after God's own heart, a broken man, a flawed man, but a man after God's own heart, extended mercy. So what I want to do is take you on an adventure to show you how David lived this out and show you how God extends it to you and then how we can respond and turn to God's mercy. Are you guys ready? All right, let's pray. That's enough of you to keep going. So Father, thank you for what you're going to say to us this morning, and I pray that you'll customize this talk for these folks that I love and that you love more. So thank you for what you're going to say to us today. That's not my words, not my opinion, but Father, your truth that will lead us to understand who you are and what you want to do in, for, and through us. So we commit ourselves to you, and we pray this in Christ Jesus' strong name. Amen. Now go ahead and take out your, uh, your Take the Weekend With You notes, and let's jump into this and, and really dig into what mercy. Now King David, King David was different because King David had the Spirit of God dwelling on him. Remember, there was only two people in the Old Testament who permanently had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That was John the Baptist and David. When David was anointed a king, the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord came to dwell on him from that day forward. Now you say, wait a second. David did some pretty heinous things with the Spirit of God dwelling on him. Yeah, so do you. Right? Yeah, you can look at your neighbor right there and say, yeah, back at you, Jack. You Same one. So that's true. But let me tell you about David and David's mercy. Saul was the king of Israel. He was king. If you remember, I told you this earlier in the pursuit, that Saul's name in Hebrew sounds exactly like the phrase, ask for. He was king, ask for. The people asked for a king, so they got Saul. And Saul was a bad king. Saul was a bad king for 40 years. He wasn't a bad king for two weeks. He was a bad king for 40 years years they had king asked for now god rejected saul and he anointed david and saul then began to erode and david began to arise and because that's what god does and but david wouldn't kill saul because david wasn't going to touch god's anointed he said he's king and until god says he's not king and until that time i'm not going to mess with him i'll let god mess with him you know there's a lot of times in our lives we don't we need to quit messing with stuff and let god mess with it just let god do it and so david had that that posture but Saul was killed on Mount Gilboa. And his son Jonathan, who was David's best friend, was also killed on Mount Gilboa, and another one of Saul's sons 
were killed in battle on Mount Gilboa. And when Saul died, Saul's family knew that the tradition of Eastern kings was to come in and kill everybody in the family, kill everybody in the household, kill all the king's friends, wipe out everybody so he could establish his king, his, his own rule and reign without any encumbrance from an old administration. That was the practice. But that was not what David did. What David did, when he became king, he said, he asked this question, is there anyone in Jonathan's family or Saul's family that I could extend kindness to? What? Completely out of character for an eastern king. Is there anyone in the family I could extend kindness to? And they said, yes, there's a young man. He's Jonathan's son. Jonathan's David's best friend. His name's Mephibosheth. Now, obviously, Saul's family had run out of names to name children, and they got down to Mephibosheth. It has some Hebrew name. I don't know what it is. It probably means the, the Mephibosheth who is also a chef. That's probably what it means. I was just cooking up that one. Okay, anyway. I'll stop, okay. But he extended uh, grace to Mephibosheth, and he said, mercy to Mephibosheth. He said, instead of killing you, I'm going to invite you into my family. This is crazy. But David just didn't stop there with extending kindness because of Jonathan. He did it even to people who were against him. When Absalom tried to overthrow, David's son Absalom tried to overthrow David, Absalom was going to kill David. And David went on the run, and as he was running out of Jerusalem, we talked about this last week, that he was on the run, and there was a guy named Shinai who, who was uh, a part of Saul's family. Let me, let me read this for you. This is interesting. As King David came to, to Bedram, a man came out of the village cursing them. It was Shimei, the son of Giza, from the same clan as Saul's family. For he threw stones at the king and the king's officers and all the mighty warriors who surrounded him. This guy's an idiot. He's throwing rocks at Benaniah, the son of Jehoadiah, who chased a lion to a pit on a snowy day. It, you know, talking about a mighty warrior. He's throwing rocks at a mighty warrior. This guy chased a pit into a line on a snowy day. I think I'm brave when I drive a truck on purgatory on a rainy day. That was funny, and you guys missed it. Okay. And this is what he said. Get out of here, you murderer, you scoundrel. He shouted at David. And, and shouted at David. The Lord is paying you back for all the bloodshed in Saul's clan. David didn't kill anybody in Saul's clan. This guy was completely misinformed. Do you know most of your critics are completely misinformed? Most of your critics are completely misinformed. And he goes on. You stole the throne, and now the Lord has given it to your son Absalom. At last you will taste some of your own medicine, for you are a murderer. He's saying this to the king. Has he lost his mind? And then... Uh, and then one of king's mighty men, Abishai, uh, Ab Abishai, he says this, why should this dead dog curse the, the Lord, the king? Abishai, the son of Zimri, demanded, let me go over and cut off his head. I like that guy. I need some deacons like that. I was going to cut off their head. Now just hold on. Let's don't cut off anybody's head. Let's be merciful. But David said, you know, perhaps this guy's right. Maybe, I'm, maybe I just need to back off. And he, he said, just let him curse. Just let him us and so he did and when Absalom lost and, and Shammai got a little nervous because David was back king he said I'm not going to do anything about you brother I'm not it's all good 
You curse me, but I will show you mercy because the Lord has shown me mercy. Today, and this is what David said, today is a day for mercy, not for vengeance. So this guy breathed a sigh of relief, but when David was on his deathbed, he pulled Solomon close and said, I want to tell you about two old boys I want you to deal with. One of them's Joab. Joab's a bad dude. You need to deal with him. And so Solomon sends Benaniah, the son of Jehoadiah, to take care of Joab, and he does. Now, Joab's a mighty warrior. Benaniah was a bad dude. So Benaniah goes and takes care of Joab. And then David said, and this other guy, Shimei, he cursed me. You keep your eye on him. Now, any good pastor will tell the next pastor who you need to keep an eye on. There's some folks out there you need to keep an eye on. I know who you are. All right. So he said, you keep an eye on him. And so Solomon said to Shema, you know, I know you were an idiot, and I'm not going to do anything, but I want to tell you something. If you leave Jerusalem, you're going to die. Three years went past. Shammai thought Solomon had forgot. The wisest man in all the world is going to forget. Uh-uh. Shammai goes to Gaza to find some slaves that had run away, and when he came back, guess who went to see Shammai? Benaniah, son of Jehoadiah. It ain't a good day when Benaniah shows up at your door. Hello. Come to take you to your eternal reward. But David showed mercy. Now, looking at that, why did David show this kind of mercy? Let me tell you why. Because God had lavished mercy on David. And if God has lavished mercy on David, he's lavished mercy on us. Shouldn't we respond in like kind? So I want to take you down some pathways to show you how God has lavished his mercy on you. And I want all you to listen, because this is really important. This is how God shows you his mercy. First thing he does, he forgives you. He forgives you. He does not hold your sins against you. But if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't say that confession is the precursor for forgiveness, but he says for confession says that you admit it. One of the signs of spiritual maturity is the quickness to recognize sin and confess it. You don't confess it to me or to a priest. You confess it to the Lord. But this is what God says, hey, I'm faithful. I've already done it. I've already forgiven you. I justified you on the cross when I died for you, I paid for all your sins, past, present, and future. Now, some of you say, well, if I'm already forgiven, let's get the sin going. And Paul said, should I sin more than grace may abound? He said, no, never let that be. That's stupid. Because even though you're forgiven, there's consequences for sin. And sin brings shame and pain. I remember when I was a student pastor, I had a, a young girl, a beautiful young girl, and she was just, I mean, wild child. And I sat down and I said, baby, I want to tell you something. God loves you. It sin's only fun for a season. She says, I know, and I'm in my season. And the season led to a lot of heartache for her family and for herself. I'm in my season, she says with arrogant brashness. We kept loving her through that season. But God is faithful. He's just. Now get this, to forgive us. He's already forgiven us. But here's the next part, to cleanse us. What does that mean? That means to restore the intimacy of relationship. Now, Tara and I have two grandchildren. Little Ivy, she's a little over two and a half. She is in the middle of the season of no. 
Everything's no. So yesterday, Tara was having a text conversation with our daughter, Kayla, and she said, uh, Kayla said, I asked Ivy, she thought Lily, her little sister, was cute. She said, no. She said, then I said, ask her if she thinks Papa's cute. She said, no. Then ask her if she thinks Mama's cute. She said, no. She said, ask her if she thinks Gigi's cute. And she nodded her head, yes, because Gigi is her favorite. If I was treated like Ivy's treated by Gigi, she would, you were my favorite anyway, okay? But just saying, I got to ride home with you through purgatory, baby. So uh, the adventure of a lifetime. But in the season, no. You know what? These two, you know what they do? They poop in their diapers. They do that. And they're nasty. It's toxic. It'll peel the paint off the wall. So when they do that, what we do? We throw them away. We throw those children away. They're just nasty. We just throw them away. No, we clean them up. Why? Because we will return them to the intimacy of poop-free. That's kind of a moving example, isn't it? Yeah. And that's what God does. He cleans us up. Because, boy, we can make a mess, right? God loves to take our mess and make it a ministry. Take our misery and make it uh, a mess and make it a message. Our misery and make it a ministry. Because that's why he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. He restores us. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. God is filled with unfailing love. Why does the world think God is angry? Because most Christians act like we were baptized in vinegar. Just saying. He will not constantly accuse us or remain angry forever. He does not punish us for our sins, nor does he deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is great as the heights of the heaven above the earth. It's removed our sins as far as the east is from the West. It's Psalm 103, 8 through 12. Wow. But he, 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 just, he, he restores us. Listen to what he says here. This is Joel 2, 25 and 26. The Lord says, I will give you back what you lost to the swarming locusts, the hopping locusts, the stripping locusts, and the cutting locusts. Did you guys ever know that there were that many kind of locusts? That just bugs me that there's that many kind of locusts. You're welcome. So I sent those great destroying armies against you. Once again, you have all the food you want, and you will praise the Lord your God who does these miracles for you. Never again will my people be disgraced. He's the God of forgiveness and restoration. Tara and I went through a terrible dark time where we lost everything, where those locusts came and took everything, and God gave us his promise, and he is the God of restoration, and he is. Everything the locusts have eaten from our lives God has restored. God has restored. He renews us. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone. The new life has begun. That we're renewed by God. I love that. I'm not who I once was, and I'm not now what I'm going to become because Jesus is still working on me. He makes us right with himself, and that faith, that right with himself brings joy to my life that I'm not going to have joy until I'm right with God. Man, I know this in marriage. When mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. 
And when, when Tara's happy, there's joy in our home. When Tara's not happy, there's misery in our home. And it's not about Tara. It's about the rightness of relationship. And when we're in right relationship, there's joy. Now, when I'm not happy, I can get over it. But it's about joy. God gives joy. Therefore, since we've been, listen to this, it's out of Romans. Therefore, since we've been made right with God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. It's awesome. We can rejoice too for when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he's given us his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Wow. God is the one who makes me right and it gives me joy. Even in the middle of pain and hardship, God gives me joy. He adopts me. He brings me into family. He doesn't leave me isolated. On in Romans 8, he says this, so you've received a spirit that makes you fearful slave. You have not received a spirit that makes you a fearful slave. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Daddy, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. That's Romans 8, 15 through 16. Now, when Paul is writing this to the Romans, they knew that he was talking about Roman adoption. The Romans would adopt full-grown people, and their past was completely obliterated. It did not matter. Their nationality didn't matter. All that mattered now was that they're Romans with full rights and privileges because they've been adopted by a Roman. And when Paul wrote this to the Romans, they went, God's done that for us? Yeah. You're a child of God with full rights and privileges of being the child of God. Because God loves us, he's merciful, he disciplines us. Let me read this out of Hebrews, Hebrews 12. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who was never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you, he does it as he does all his children. It means that you're legitimate and you're not really his, child, his children at all. Since we respect our earthly fathers who discipline us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers discipline us for a few years, and that, that really is the discipline it's called the totalistos or the small child discipline. We're not to discipline our adult children. So, you know, I think usually pointless uh, teenagers don't use this as license to do whatever you dang well want to, but it's really pointless to discipline you. Best thing to do is to coach you and guide you. Sometimes you have to remove privileges from you because you're, like your brain hasn't healed yet. Sorry, just that. It will. Um, maybe. There's some examples of adult non-healed brains in here. But, uh, but, but that's out of love, this discipline. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. Well, that's true. But afterwards, there'll be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who train in this way. God disciplines us because he loves us. Now, some, some weird things have happened to me since I've joined you as, my past, as your pastor. I, I developed a pretty severe pain in my left hip where it was really even, I had to think like, am I going to be able to get up these stairs? I'm like, yeah, this is embarrassing. You know, I should just be leaping up there and whoa, 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 here we go, dancing bear. But, you know, I was hurting. 
So I went to the doctor finally the other day, and of course I was going to the doctor, and Tara said, you know the first thing she's going to say is that you need to lose some weight. Well, my doctor has a talking scale. You, you ever been to a doctor that has a talking scale? So I got on it, and the scale said, one at a time, please. Uh, yes. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, anyway, I go to the doctor, and she says, okay, let's get some, some x-rays. And she took some x-rays, and she says, oh, you have a hip impingement that you've had since birth. Now, I've, I'm thinking back on this, makes a lot of sense. I've never been able to cross my legs like Indian style. Remember when you are in kindergarten, crisscross applesauce, cross your legs, sit Indian style, blah, 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 blah. I never could do it. The teacher's always yelling, Scott, I told you to sit Indian style. I said, I can't, I can't, I'm hurting. They kept that push on me. I couldn't do it. You know, and realized I, I was just abused as a child, and I'm in therapy now. It's going to be better. But I had this hip impingement, and she said, if you were 30 years younger, we'd just go in and trim off that bone, and you'd be fine. But at your advanced age, and because of the arthritis that's developing your hip, I'm just going to schedule you to go get an injection in your hip. That sounds awesome, doesn't it? I'm going to go get an injection into your hip. Now, the size I am and the size of the needle that has to reach my hip is pretty much the Alaskan pipeline. So I go in there, and the, they do it. The radiologist does it, lines it up, and, and they, they, that dude stuck a needle in my soul. I have never hurt that bad in my life. I mean, and then they said, it's going to feel better after a while. I said, it feels like the devil right now. It was horrible. I wanted to throw up. I wanted to pass out. I mean, he stuck that needle. It's like, he said, well, it's highly unusual. People be those so comfortable. I said, dude, I don't care how highly you are. You're killing me. Just killing me. Finally, it was over, and my hip felt better. And today, it's better. Today, I didn't have to worry about, am I going to be able to climb the steps? I almost fell off the stage at the first service. It's because I got on these shoes that, Tara may be buying. They're more like bedroom slippers, and they got rubber bottoms. I think she was trying to collect insurance. <laughs> I almost fell off the stage earlier, but I didn't. My extreme athletic ability caught me before I plummeted <laughs> to the ground. But, you know, the painful part of the hip was worth it for the cure. The painful part of God's discipline is worth it for the lesson and the character and the restoration. Wow. God loves me, so he disciplines me. Now, all these things, let me just kind of cover them real, real fast, because this is not exhaustive, but he forgives, he restores, he renews, he makes us right, bring, that brings faith, brings joy, he adopts, he disciplines. All these things now, this causes me then to live a life of mercy to others. Because God has done this for me, should I extend this to others? And what, I, what I've seen in, usually in the church is somebody will come to Jesus and within two years they're legalistic and mean. And we're known for more what we're against than what we're for. And it's basically hypocrisy. And when we're known for being people of mercy, the world is attracted to Jesus. And we're known for being people who are jerks. The world is repulsed. Let me read for you this out of James 2, 13. This is in, out of the NIV. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So that means, this is a big statement. I've got to lose the judgment. 
I got to stop being judgmental because that's not the mercy of God. You see, when I extend mercy, I'm, I'm displaying the character of God. When I'm merciful, I explain the character of God. Um, I think I've told you this. We had a, a lady in our church in Victoria that was diagnosed with AIDS. And so with her permission, we just told the church, nobody ever asked her how she got AIDS because it didn't matter. We just loved her and showed her mercy until the Lord called her home. I was so proud of that church. Nobody said, how'd you get that? What were you doing? Didn't matter. Because it's not a sin to be sick, y'all. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, merciful, mercy can be, can become unmerciful. What? You see, we could rescue people too soon and we could delay God's discipline in their life. And when God's disciplining someone, we need to have the discernment to let God do what he does instead of trying to intervene and stop the pain because pain will bring about repentance. Now, that's especially when you're dealing with your adult children. I'm preaching to myself. It could be... We can enable bad decisions and behaviors and we delay God's work in people. Mercy is not accepting bad behavior. Mercy is not accepting sin. It's not holding people to an account. Mercy is not holding people accountable. That's not what it means. Mercy always leads and results in righteousness. But mercy says, I'm going to accept you even though I'm not going to tolerate you. I'm going to love you and tell you the truth. And I'm going to accept you. And I think God wants this church called First Baptist Wimberley to be a safe place to hear a dangerous message and to know that you can be accepted. We'll not only accept you, we're going to give you a cookie because it's just how we are around here. We're going to love you and we're going to let God work on you because God's working on us and we want to be known as people of mercy. Mercy. Now, mercy can be displayed in confrontation and conflict. Now, a lot of times we don't want to have confrontation with people or we don't want to be in conflict with people because we seem like it doesn't display mercy. But you know, conflict can be a pathway to intimacy when we handle it with God's grace and mercy. We maintain unity through the bond of peace. Sometimes we do not agree, but we never have to be disagreeable. As a church family, we're not going to agree on everything. But when we gossip and slander and backlight back, backbite and add speculation to stuff, we're not helpful when we extend mercy to one another that it is helpful. We should know, known as the people of mercy, expressed and displayed. And we have a great opportunity right now. As Hurricane Harvey hit the coast of South Texas is where we lived for 15 years. I'm going to reach out to, First ba uh, to, uh, to Parkway Church in Victoria, and we're going to say, how can we help you? And, and we, might be, we might be going down there. I know our disaster relief team is chomping at the bit. We're ready to go. We're going to figure out how we can lean in and help because we want to be people of mercy. People of mercy. And we want to extend grace and mercy to people. We want to be the people of the first response, 
not the people of the neglect. Would you agree? What can we do together? Because God's mercy changes us. And so we can be used by him to change the world. I started this talk by saying every decision becomes a destination. And I'm going to choose mercy because mercy rules. God has been merciful to me so I could display mercy to you. All for Jesus.